Simple chapter, a lot to do. It's John saying, here's what you've got. Some of it good, some of it hard. So he's just laying out reality, here's what you've got. So first of all, he says this to us. As he concludes, he says to the believer, you've got to win. Check this out. Verse 1, 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You got to win. John is saying, part of his theme, he's very repetitive. He's saying, faith births a victorious family. And John says, there's two things that you cannot lose as a Christian if you do these two things. Love the brothers, love the church, love believers, and number two, obey God. It's that simple. Love and obey. If you do that, you're going to win. Well, Matt, it's hard to love people. I know it is. I, I don't even like some people. How do I love someone I don't like? I think you can love people you don't like, that you can pray for, speak well of, pray God's favor in, like don't sabotage them. You can do that for people that you don't like, and that is actively loving them, right? You can love people you don't like. Like you may be married to somebody like that. And you know there are moments you don't necessarily like him or her, but you still can participate in loving them. And it is, I think, a step of faith. So the key verse here is verse four, be overcome by your faith. That by faith, you choose to say, all right, I may not like this person right now. They're bugging me. They're getting on my nerves, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to choose to pray God's blessing on them. I'm going to choose to treat them with dignity and respect. I'm going to choose to not speak negatively about their character or who they are. That you can, by faith, do these things. And John has said that a lot. And we've talked a lot about loving people. And then he adds on to it this second thing. You obey God. That can be hard as well. You obey his commands. You don't sleep with your girlfriend. You don't sleep with your boyfriend. You wait till you get married. You don't steal from the government. They hate competition, so you shouldn't anyways, right? So you don't steal from them. And John's really honest here. He says this. You got to know this about what God commands us to do. He uses this term, his commands are not burdensome. That what God asks me, what God asks you to do, 
It's not trying to take something from us. That his commands are for my good. That God never forbids something in scripture that's not good. Sometimes we don't understand it. So when you start seeing God's will and his commands is you read the Old Testament where God gives a bunch of commands. And at the time that he gave them, I bet the people did not understand them. So God said this, listen, when you have some meat, cook it. Now we get that today because it's like, yeah, without refrigeration, without sanitation, you really need to cook your food because it keeps you healthy. 3,500 years ago, they'd be like, it's such a hassle. I don't want to do this. But we get it today. God makes this other law. He says to his people, he tells them, listen, when you go to the bathroom, take a shovel and bury it. Now, I bet there are people that are like, man, that's such a bummer. I've always got to find a shovel. I sometimes don't have a t- time to find a shovel. What a hassle. I have to go outside the camp to do this. I just want to do it right here. And we live very far away from those kind of things. But it's, it's, it can be pretty disturbing. So if you've ever been to Southeast India, not all India is this way, but in Southeast India, they don't have bathrooms. So you walk around and there's just human feces all over the place. It's crazy. You step off the airplane and it hits you like a, just like a ton of bricks. You're like, whoa, what is that smell? I know that smell. It gets into your clothes. Like I just gave away all my clothes. I've been there five times. They're trying to actually a campaign to stop this because it's you walk along the road and along the roadside, there's just that, right? So imagine, go back 3,500 years. You have 2 million people on a 40-year camp out. If they did not bury their stuff, how gross would that be? God knew this. So he's like, hey, hey, this is gonna be for your good, right? I think a lot of times when you look at the Bible, even when God says hard things to his people, there's a built-in blessing to them. I call them blurses. It's a blessing with a curse. So Genesis 3, sin. God gives a really good place for Adam and Eve. They trash the joint. They get evicted, and God says, things are going to be different now. It was, you just planted a seed, and up would sprout a tree, and you'd have fruit. Now, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. What do we know about sweating now? It's super healthy, right? Like if you want to be healthy, you got to go sweat. Billions of dollars are spent every year for you and I to go to some building and to sweat because we found that's actually how you live healthy. I always tell people, I will save you money. You can come to my house and dig a hole and you can save a lot of money. You can sweat that way. Come today, you really sweat. It'll be awesome, right? We know this, like inside even that, God is saying, I'm for your good, for your good. That God is always after our good. And so maybe you're reading and you're studying the Bible and God begins to impress something on your heart and you don't understand why God would command that for you. You have to keep this this verse. They're not burdensome. I think a lot of times, here's what happens to us. God wants to do something in us and the only way that God can do that to us and through us is sometimes through a little bit of like, I don't understand this. So remember that movie, The Karate Kid? Remember Daniel wanted Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate? And so if you remember, there's this scene where Mr. Miyagi finally agrees, I'll teach you karate. And this is what he says. He says, Daniel's son, 
you and I are making a sacred pact. I promise to teach you karate. You promise to learn. I say, you do, no questions. Remember that? And then it was wax on and wax off. And then it was paint the fence this way. And it was sand the deck this way. And there comes a point in the movie where Daniel just explodes. He's like, I came to learn karate and you're making me do all your chores. And remember that scene, Mr. Miyagi says, okay, fine. I'm going to try to punch you. When I do, wax on. Wah, right? He's like, oh my goodness. I learned karate. I think sometimes that's the way it is. That God says to you and me, Matt, I've made a sacred pact with you. I'm your father, and you are my son, and I am promising to make you like my son, Jesus Christ. I say you do. Trust me. My commands are not burdensome. They are for you. That's the attitude to have. That's how you overcome. That's why verse 4 says this. They overcame by faith. It's trusting. God is good, and he's generous, and his commands are not trying to take something from me. His commands are to make me into something. When we trust our teacher, our heavenly father, do what he commands, we flourish and you get a boldness in your life. You start believing Jeremiah 29, 11, that God's thoughts for us are thoughts of peace to bring us to a glorious end. I trust you in this. God, you're doing something. You become bold. Like William Carey, if you don't know his story, brilliant man. In 1790, he was just this shoe repairman in London, started to read the Bible, and he felt this call to missions. Because if you know church history, missions had completely stopped at that point. There was a certain kind of doctrine that said, hey, if God's going to save people, do it on his own. But then William Carey had this passion to be a missionary. And so he started trying to share this to people. And he was at this one lunch where he was trying to share this passion with people. And this lady said this to him, oh, I heard you're just a shoemaker. And William Carey said, oh, no, I am not a shoemaker. I'm just a shoe repairman, right? He knew he was, but he had this confidence in God. And he wrote out this motto, and his motto was this, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And he went on to become what we, would, what we call today the father of modern missions. He's considered the greatest missionary since the Apostle Paul. Took the gospel by himself, essentially, to the subcontinent of India. Translated the Bible into 20 languages. His legacy is unbelievable. Why? Because he had faith. He had faith. You overcome by faith. What would you do if you really believed that God was on your side? What kind of walls would fall? What kind of territory would be taken? How much different would your life be? Well, God is on your side. We have victory. Take a step of faith. Try it. Be a William Carey. We've got to win, number one. Number two, we've got to witness. Look at verse six. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, 
and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this is the life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You've got a witness. And John says, these three agree, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, those three may agree, but no theologian agrees on what this means. If you read 10 commentaries, you'll get 15 different answers about what the water and the blood and the spirit mean. So for me, I know this about the Bible. If you've read John, his gospel, his epistles, the book of Revelation, he uses a lot of figures of speech. We are 2,000 years away and a different language away from his figures of speech. They'll be hard to understand. You got to do some research. So right now we have figures of speech. Like if you pay for something that's really expensive, we have this figure of speech. You're going to pay through the nose. Now, if that was literally true, no one would take your money, but we know what it means. All right. Now in 2000 years, if someone uses that, it's going to be very strange for them. So for me, I always say, if I want to know what this means, I have to get back to the point John's trying to make. And John had a battle because there was people infiltrating the church and they were bringing this message. Hey, Jesus was great, but we've got something better. They're called Gnostics. We have this secret knowledge. That's what Gnostics mean. We have this secret knowledge that if you learn our tricks, hey, you'll be able to ring the God genie any way you want and he'll drop you the goods. And so John was fighting that. So if that's his main message, then I think everything is going to be pointing to Jesus is it. So when I look at these three things, the water, the blood, and the spirit, I say they are backing up that Jesus is it. So here's my take on them. The water speaks of his birth, the virgin birth, that it's God, the son, incarnationally becomes Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Emmanuel, as Isaiah the prophet says, God with us. And what happens when a woman gives birth? There's water, right? There's a lot of water. For new, newly married people, there's a lot of water. Like, here's the classic story I have on that. My sister-in-law, Rebecca, was giving birth to Salome, my niece, about 12 years ago. My son, Elijah, was just about two years old. And so my wife gets a call from Rebecca, her sister. And Rebecca says, hey, my water just broke. I'm headed to the hospital. My son, Elijah, two years old, he's hearing this conversation gets packed in the car, driven over to the hospital. And as they're driving, my wife is saying, hey, Elijah, do you know why we're going to the hospital? So two-year-old Elijah says, yeah, for Rebecca. Okay, why is Rebecca in the hospital? And so my two-year-old son Elijah said, because one of her water pipes broke. 
Like, you just got to think, a two-year-old brain, just what is happening? They're like, what is a water pipe? So awesome. I've had five children. When water breaks, you know it, right? You're like, wow, that's, that seems like an awful lot of water. I think the water speaks of the birth of Jesus, that God the Son becomes Jesus. Humanity comes down. It's his divinity. He's born of a virgin. It's God with us. So he's divine. Then the blood. The blood is the cross where God dies. God bleeds. No other God does this. Even Albert Camus, that agnostic, said, there's no one like this God. There's no one like him that God would bleed and die because God took on humanity, didn't lose his divinity, took on humanity. 1 Timothy 3.16, great is this mystery that God would be manifest in the flesh, his humanity. Divinity, humanity, and then the spirit. And it's linked in verse 11 with life. If you know your Bible, the Bible says God's spirit brought Jesus back to life. I think this is the resurrection. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And did you know this? The resurrection is the most documented event from 2,000 years ago. So there is not even a close second to it. So every year around Easter, there's always this idea that, you know, the resurrection never happened. It was a legend. Just, you know, 50 years afterwards, people were like, well, he was a really cool guy. 100 years later, he's like, he's a really awesome guy, did these miracles. 200 years later, he actually came out of the grave. That just kind of got invented and grew over the course of 200 years. Have you heard that? It's hogwash. It's usually from the Discovery Channel. I love to learn about lions from Discovery. I don't want to learn about my Lord Jesus Christ from Discovery because they have an agenda, right? The resurrection is the most documented event in history. Well, Matt, you have to say that. You're a pastor. Okay, let me give you someone else. This lady, her name is Anne Rice. If you're from my generation, you remember she was an author. She wrote about vampires before vampires were cool because of Twilight. She was a best-selling author. They went massive. One of her books was turned into a movie called Interview with a Vampire with Tom Cruise, blockbuster movie. She's very wealthy. He's an atheist, went to college, married an atheist, does not believe. She's as wealthy as it can be. She decided about 15 years ago that she was going to write a book about how Jesus left Israel, went down to Egypt to study the black arts and to bring them back to Israel. So that's not a book you'll buy at Evangel. Your small group will not be studying it. It will not have a scriptural reference, right? It's not that kind of book. Midway through her research, she all of a sudden decides Jesus is divine he is God. The resurrection is true, and she becomes a Christian. And her husband is like, we're atheists. We don't believe in Jesus. What's going on, Anne? Right? So the Wall Street Journal hears about this, and they do an interview with her. Right? So I just grabbed a little chunk of that interview to, to give you what she found out why she converted, and it's the documentation about Jesus. Check this out. Some books, as she's researching, some books were no more than assumption piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem 
and somehow got crucified. That whole picture, which had been floated around in liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. And Rice, the resurrection, you got a witness. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is nothing remotely close to the amount of documentation we have for that. Nothing even, a, not even a close second. You got a witness. And John says it's even deeper than that. There's a witness actually inside of you that God's spirit just says, hey, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So number two, you got a witness. Number three, you got a prayer. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Number three, you've got a, you've got a prayer. God hears your prayers not because of how much the Bible you know or how much the Bible you've read or how good you've been this last week. God hears your prayers because you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, Matt, I have prayed for things that I did not get. What about that? Notice in verse 14, it says, when you pray according to his will, that there are plenty of prayers that people offer up that are against God's will, right? That just people are in disobedience and they're just not obeying God. I get this when I'm getting it more frequently and it's starting to bother me. And it's a young lady will come up to me and say, hey, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I was raised in the church, all that. It's awesome. But I have this boyfriend and he doesn't believe. In fact, he's an atheist. And he asked me last weekend if I would marry him. And I agreed. So now he's my fiance. And I'm asking, would you please pray that my fiance would believe in Jesus? You know my answer now? I'm going to pray that you break up with him until he does believe in Jesus. The reason why I say that? 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But Matt, you don't understand, man. I, I, that happened to me and my fiance now believes in Jesus. Yeah, God is good. Awesome. I deal with the other nine that it didn't happen that way. And it's brutal and difficult because they're headed in two opposite directions in life. It's brutal. We're supposed to pray according to his will. It's why I love theology so much. It helps me to know, oh, this is God's will. This is the way I'm supposed to pray. Brilliant. I'm going to do that, right? You have confidence there. It's like Elijah who the New Testament holds up as a man to emulate when it comes to prayer. He marches into King Ahab's throne room, points at the king and says, it's not, gonna, it's not going to rain according to my word. Now, how could he say that? Because Deuteronomy eleven seventeen says, if you act like King Ahab, I will shut up the heavens and there will be no rain. He was praying according to God's words. 
you got a prayer. Well, my, my prayers just seem weak. It doesn't feel like God's hearing them. Well, the Bible does warn us. It gives five warnings that will weaken your prayers. If you're involved in this, you'll have weak prayers. I'll give them to you very quickly. Number one, if you're double-minded, it's James chapter one. It says, ask, and God's going to give to you liberally. He won't hold back. But ask in faith, nothing wavering, because a man who wavers is like a wave of the sea that's driven by the wind and tossed. Don't think if you're that man, you'll receive anything from God because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Here's what double-minded means in the Bible. You're asking for God's opinion on something to get like a, mm, a reference, but you're not saying, God, I'm asking you because I will obey you. You're asking, what, what do you think, God? God says, well, this is what you should do. Nah, I'm not doing that. Well, if you're that, that's called double-minded. Don't expect anything from God because God doesn't play those games. We're to be single-minded saying, God, you are the creator. And if you tell me to do something that's yes, father, period. So double-minded. Number two, and have a better way to put this, dumb motives. It's James chapter four. He says, you ask and you receive not because you want to consume it upon your own lusts. You're asking for bad motives. You're lusting, you're angry, you want vengeance. There's some bad motive in you. And God says, I don't, I don't play by those motives. Number three, and this one always just blows me away. It's you don't treat your wife right. You disrespect your wife. It's 1 Peter 3, 7. So Peter there gives his advice on marriage. And then he says this, husbands, treat your wives right so that your prayers won't be hindered. How crazy is that? God is so into protecting his daughters that he'll literally say, I won't hear your prayers. Husband, I won't hear your prayers because you treat my daughter right first. You take care of that first before we move on from that. That's how serious God takes it. And sometimes there's guys that I think they have all the talents in the world and they're super good and they want to be used by the Lord and they never get used. And in, my, in the back of my head, I always wonder, I wonder how he treats his wife. I wonder how he treats his wife because God takes it that seriously, right? Number four, you don't help the poor. It's Isaiah 58. You can read that great chapter. It's about prayer and fasting. And God says, I haven't called this kind of a fast because you're praying and you're fasting for the wrong reasons. You're not even helping out people that are weak around you. And then the prayer, the fasting he calls for, he says, when you fast, take what you would not have eaten and then go give it to somebody that needs it. You don't take care of the weak around you. It can hinder your prayers. And then the last one, the last one is you diss God. It's Amos 5. One of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible where God says this, I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate when you sing. Like hate is a strong word, is it not? Like in my house, we have always told our kids, yeah, you, you can't say hate. That's too strong of a word. Like we, we, but God didn't listen to me when he told Amos how he felt. I hate it. Modern translation would be this. I hate it when you come to church and you're singing the song, raising your hands because you're trying to play me. You're acting like I have not seen the last six days of your life, which is verse 26, where you're playing both sides of the fence and you come into church and you think, I don't know you. You think, I don't know what you've been doing. You're treating me like a child, right? Like kids do this all the time to us. 
They'll get into something, they'll get into the chocolate, whatever, and you try to figure out how it is and you can track them through your house, right? The trail they leave. And you find them and they've got a chocolate goatee and you say, did you get into the chocolate? Oh no, dad. Oh, then who did? I think mommy did, (laughs) right? You're like, it's all over you. You're playing me for a fool. That's what God says in that text. And if you're playing me a fool, fool like that, you're thinking, I can't see what your life is actually a bit about. That because you're in church nodding and not off to sleep, but mm, that is a great point. That somehow I'm like, okay, I guess I was wrong about him. Don't diss God. The Bible is about coming clean and repenting and saying, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me. I'm wrong right now. That's what God wants, right? These things will hinder your prayers. But if you pray God's way, according to his will, pure motives, clean heart, repentant before God, man, there is great power and you have confidence in your prayer because of Jesus Christ. That's why. You got a prayer. Number four, you got a battle. Look at verse 16. Maybe the most controversial text in the book of 1 John. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, making a practice of sin. We've talked about this. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Number four, you got a battle. The big question on this text is, What's a sin unto death? What in the world is John talking about? Whenever I personally have a Bible question, guess where I go to get the answer to a Bible question? The Bible. And as you read the Bible, here's what you see. There are people that God literally takes out. Genesis 38, a guy by the name of Onan does not treat his brother's wife correctly And it says, God killed him. Fast forward to Nadab and Abihu, Numbers chapter nine. The sons of the high priest Aaron who come in and apparently seems like they were drunk and they offer strange fire on the altar and God kills them. You've got Moses who does not represent God right. And God says, you can't come to the promised land. You're coming home. New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter five. They hold back part of what they were supposed to or what they promised that they were going to give or try to make believe that they did give and they lied to the Holy Spirit and God took them. First Corinthians 11, they would have these things on Sunday, these agape feasts where they would have this big celebration. But what apparently was happening was the rich people feasted while the poor people fasted and not because they wanted to. And then they would take the Lord's Supper. They'd come to communion. And Paul says, because of your disrespect like that, not acting like the body, some of you are sick and some of you have died. So you do see there is times where God does that. 
But it's not always the same sin, right? It's not like, well, it's lying. God says, that's it, I'm killing you. It's something else. There's something else going on where God says, okay, that's it, I'm done. There's some kind of wanton attitude. So what does it mean, a sin unto death? Here's what I think, and there's a ton of opinions on this. This is just one man's opinion. And it's not mine, it's actually from H.A. Ironside. If you know great preachers from about 70 years ago, he is one of the top great preachers from about 70 years ago. So H.A. Ironside on this gives this metaphor. He says it's like this. It's like a mom who's inside of her house and she hears screaming and yelling outside. She peeks out the window and there is her precious little angel on top of that little devil next door beating the snot out of him. So she yells at her precious little angel, Johnny, get off of him, knock it off. So he does. Two minutes later, screaming and yelling again. The mom looks, sees, and this time she says, Johnny, that's it, come home. H.A. Ironside said, that's what God does. There are times when God says, you know what? You're hurting people or you're hurting yourself too much. I'm bringing you home now. You can't do this anymore. That I'm, it's time for you to stop the bleeding, stop the hurt, stop the pain to yourself and to other people. You're coming home. That it's actually motivated by his grace and mercy to bring his kids home before they hurt themselves or others too bad. That's what H.I. Ironside says is a sin unto death. And I happen to agree with him. I think that's what John is saying. But inside of this sin unto death is a wider thing, right? It's there's a battle. And I think every believer should have verse 19 underlined. So when we look at our world and see whatever's happening, travesties like happened in a condo down in Miami, you see this, look what it says. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If that's true, if this whole world is underneath the power of the evil one, wouldn't you expect bad things to happen? Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Ephesians 6.19 says he's got his armies in ranks and powers. So we can argue a lot about what can our enemy do, and you can think about, well, I don't know what level he has, but there is in the Bible throughout it, the enemy has power and he wants to destroy you and me. And there's a war, there's a battle, you've got a battle. And I'll say this on this, one final point. Every good war has a mission. World War II was a war that had a mission. What was the mission of World War II? Get rid of Hitler, right? That dude's really bad, we've gotta take him out. And the world united around this dude, he's bad news. He's bad news. You're in a battle. Let me ask you, what's your mission? Because what I found in believers is this. You can begin to kind of move through your faith and you can lose mission. And the moment you lose mission, you stop moving. It's like your faith just screeches to a halt. And the way that you engage yourself again and say, God, I know that you've given me talents. You've given me spiritual gifts. You've given me experiences. And all of that is so that I'll be engaged in the good works that you prepared for me in advance. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. And the moment you do what you find is your faith erupts. What's your mission in Grants Pass or wherever you're at? We're all supposed to have a mission. 
And maybe we need to pray. I hope we're all like Caleb, who at 84 years of age, when he could have retired and just done nothing, Caleb said, I don't want to do that. Give me the mountain with a giant on it because it's bread for me. It feeds my faith. What's your mission? Every single one of you, because of the talents God has given you and the experience that you have, there's a certain mission that only you can do. And maybe you need to sit down this week or this month and really ask and pray, God, what's my mission? What am I, supposed to, what am I called to do? Because my faith has been kind of stagnant. And watch and see it get re-engaged when you step up to the mission, to the battle that God has for you. Because you've got a battle. Then lastly and finally, John says this, you've been warned. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. You don't need Gnosticism, you need Jesus. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. What did that just say right there? In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. And there's any doubt that John believes Jesus is God this verse erases it. And eternal life, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's believed by Bible scholars that 1 John was actually the last book penned, that John had already read, written his epistles, and, or the other two epistles, he had already written John and Revelation, and this is the final thing John writes, and it's the final thing that's written in the Bible. So the very last thing the Bible chronologically has written is this little phrase, keep yourselves from idols. And it's like John just says, mic drop and walks off the stage. Now, why would that be? God, John loves contrast, doesn't he? Light versus dark, saint versus ain't, life versus death, good versus evil, truth versus lie. And his final comparison is these two verses. It's either Jesus, verse 20, or it's idols, verse 21. It's going to be one or the other. You're either going to believe in Jesus and he's going to come into your heart or there will be a vacuum in your heart that sucks in an idol. I tell people that don't believe in Jesus, you've got a vacuum and vacuums always suck in dirt. So you're going to suck in some dirt. It's going to be an idol. How do you know if there's an idol in your heart? I think there's two tests you can tell. Number one is your time. When you have free time, you're driving or you're asleep, ready to go to sleep, and there's just nothing else to think about, what's something that you're thinking all the time about? That's a lot of times that tells me, man, this thing is starting to creep into my life and become an idol. And number two, your treasure. There is nothing too expensive for your God. You will always be generous to your God. Look at your wallet. What do you spend a lot of money on? Right? If looks are my idol, or if looks are your idol, then nothing's too expensive for you. If it's, all right, it, oil of Olay isn't doing it anymore. The crow's feet are still growing. I got to get a better one. Well, have you heard of creme de mar? 16 ounces of creme de mar will cost you a cool $2,160. Here's the good news, free shipping. 
right? If it's my brain, if, if it's all about intellect and a $5,000 one-on-one with my guru, whoever it is, man, that's a bargain. If it's my body, then it's supplements or whatever. It's what are you generous with? Because you'll always be generous with your God. And you gotta be careful of them because here's the thing about little idols. They're takers. Only God's a giver. And an idol always leaves its imprint on you. Do you know that? So I'll try to give you this analogy. Have you ever met with someone that you really idolized? You really thought they were awesome, great person. So you get a lunch with them or you get an hour with them and you talk with them. And then what you find is they did something or they said something or they had a little phrase or a little mannerism that the next day you're doing, right? You're like, that was really cool. How he's like, hmm, that is fascinating. So now you're like, hmm, that is fascinating to your wife. She's like, who are you? Well, you're just imprinted on by that person because idols always imprint themselves on you. But here's the thing. Here's the big idea of the Bible. You and I are to be image bearers of God and everything else is too small. Your capacity as a human is too great for any idol that it will never be enough. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough um, power. You'll never have enough. It'll always be more, right? Right? It doesn't matter because every idol is too small because you and I were created to be imprinted by God himself. He is the image. He's the only one that can fill us. He's the only one that's big enough, no matter how big the thing may get. So the Bible says over and over, the final words of John is, look out for idols. They'll steal from you. Pay attention to the king. Love the king. Worship the king. That's the only thing that will fill you. That's what he says. It's why every Sunday we take communion. It's a way for us to force every service and every message to focus us back on the king. The king. That he is the one that authors and finishes faith. Everything else is a ripoff. So keep yourselves from idols. And one of the ways that we do that is by communion. And in communion, Jesus says this, do this in remembrance of me. I grew up thinking communion was do this in remembrance of your sins. That you need to spend some time and really confess every single sin because if you take communion with a little bit of sin in you, God's going to strike you dead. And so I, I, I did not like communion. But then when I really read that text, I'm not supposed to remember me. I'm supposed to remember Jesus. I'm supposed to fix my eyes on Jesus. That this is to remember him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his power that he can give me. The fact that I'm supposed to be imprinted with his image, that's what I'm supposed to remember. And so Jesus today, as we hold the bread your body broken for us. I ask that each one of us, where we need to, that we would be imprinted by you. That our goal is Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of the Son. True image bearers. So even today, Lord, may we be honest about where our hearts are because you already know. May we confess that we need to fix our eyes upon you because we're easily distracted. 
And may as we partake, you fill the vacuum of our souls. That you're sufficient. Let's take, let's eat together. And we hold the cup, the cup of cleansing, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of the coming kingdom that you said you would not drink of this again until you drank it anew in the kingdom. That we can drink in anticipation of what we will become. We can drink in hope. There's coming a time where your will will be being done in earth as it is in heaven. Where our bodies are remade, no longer will we struggle in the flesh, but we'll have new bodies, not dead bodies, but alive bodies, immortal. That our enemy, the battle's over, all that's evil will be wrapped up into a ball and tossed into a place called the lake of fire. And that the world will be remade with shalom as its foundation. May we have hope as we partake today. Let's drink together. Amen. So we offer prayer after our final song. Maybe it's prayer for mission. Maybe it's prayer, I think I've got an idol. Maybe it's prayer for finances. I don't, it doesn't matter. Nothing too big, nothing too small. You have a prayer because Jesus is our mediator. He's the bridge back to the Father. Come, receive prayer. We offer baptisms. We offer it every Sunday because we see in the Bible, in the book of Acts, the theme is this, repent and be baptized. Change your mind about God. He's not holding out on you. His commands are not burdensome. They're for you. Repent about what you believe about God and be baptized. Obey him as your king. Signified by going into these waters, the old you dying and a new one resurrected in a newness of life. If your day is today to be baptized, we'd love to join in that. If you're doing awesome, praise God. He is good and he's generous. Would you stand for one final song?